lurks in the hearts of men. <laughs> the shadow knows. Do you, Chris, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to barrage her with obscure facts concerning comics, movies, TV shows, and toys? I do. And Cindy, do you take this man-child to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you promise to humor him by engaging him in his obsessive ramblings, for better or worse, in pre-crisis or in post? Sure, why not? Then by the power invested in me by the High Father of the Fourth World, I now pronounce you Supermates. You may podcast with the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of Supermates, a husband and wife geekcast. I'm Chris. I'm Sandy. And today, this is part one of our two-part summer blockbusters that weren't series. Cindy actually suggested we reinvestigate some genre-related film adaptations from the quote-unquote wilderness years before such movies became common. So before all the glut of superhero comic book-based movies. Uh Most of these flopped, but for the most part are enjoyable films. Right. So we thought it'd be worth re-examining them. And I actually, it was Cindy's idea, but I wanted to run this past Rob Kelly because I didn't want to step on his toes with the, the Film and Water podcast. Right. And Rob's like, go for it. So so here we are. Uh, for this episode, we're going to discuss the 1994 Russell Mulcahy film, The Shadow, starring Alec Baldwin. And one of the reasons we also picked this one is, as we sit here, um, we are on the eve of Father's Day, and this was one of my father's favorite comic heroes when he was a little boy growing up. Wow. And okay. so that's one of the reasons I always liked it, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss it. So, yay, Clarence Redley, my daddy. Yeah, there you go. Well, my dad <laughs> my dad was a Shadow fan, too, and we'll we'll get into that when we, we get into our a little bit more personal history. But going back to a brief rundown of, of the history of the character, uh, in case you didn't know, the Shadow has some very convoluted origins. He may have been inspired by a character called the Shadow of Wall Street from the February 1929 issue of Fame and Fortune magazine, published by Street and Smith, uh, which was a huge magazine company that eventually became Cod Nast, and then now it's like Advanced Magazine or something. I don't know. It's changed hands like 15 times. A year later, The Shadow emerged on radio as the narrator of Street and Smith's Detective Story Hour radio program. The mysterious cackling figure proved so popular, the publisher fleshed out the character and gave him his own pulp magazine in 1931. Now, the Detective Story Hour radio show continued into 1935, and then two years later, The Shadow had his own radio show where he was initially voiced by a very young Orson Welles. Agnes Moorhead, who was in Welles' Mercury Theater group, who later played Endora on Bewitched, portrayed love interest Margot Lane. The Pulp Shadow differed from the radio version. On radio, The Shadow was Lamont Cranston, idle rich hunter explorer who had the ability to cloud men's minds, among other mysterious abilities. In the pulps, the still mysterious shadow relied on a pair of 45s and a group of agents to wage his war on crime. He was really former aviator Kent Allard, disguising himself as Lamont Cranston to gain access to high society. Margot Lane originated on the radio, 
but eventually made it into the pulps. So you see there's like two different versions of the same character mm -hmm. running at the same time, basically. The Shadow Magazine novels were primarily written by Walter Gibson under the pseudonym of Maxwell Grant. The magazine folded in 1949, but the radio show carried on into 1954, which is amazing to think since they, I mean, there were a lot of classic TV shows like I Love Lucy and The Adventures of Superman were already running by then. A comic series by Street and Smith ran from 1940 to 1949. The character appeared in several serials and a few films during his heyday. Archie Comics revived the character in a series in the 1960s. Originally sticking to the pulp's slouched hat, long cloak, and red scarf look, they eventually gave him a gaudy standard superhero suit, which was, this was the, the 60s era of Batman when everything had to be superhero. A more traditional take was presented by DC in 1973 under the pen of Denny O'Neill and the pencil of Michael Kaluta. O'Neill was one of the first to try and combine the radio and pulp shadow elements. DC helped launch the series by teaming the shadow up with a character he directly inspired, the Batman, and Batman number 253 and 259. This shadow comic series only lasted 12 issues. And it has, you know, Bill Finger always said that the shadow was an influence on Batman. But in recent years, folks have examined the history of the two characters in the case of the Chemical Syndicate it was the first Batman story, it's pretty much a direct swipe of a Shadow story. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. So, The Shadow returned to D.C. in 1984 in a Mature Readers series by Howard Chaykin. It, of course, it was Mature Readers because it was by Howard Chaykin. D.C. followed up with a regular series by Andrew Helfer and Bill Sinkovich and Kyle Baker. At the conclusion of those modern set series, Gerard Jones and Eduardo Barreto launched The Shadow Strikes, set in the character's golden age. After that, the character has been published by both Dark Horse and now Dynamite. For more on the Shadow's history, it just so happens that back issue number 89 just came out. I got it in the mail last week. Oh, okay. And it's all about the Shadow in the Bronze Age, particularly the DC series. Uh, and it does cover the backstory of, of the character as well. So it just, we were already going to do this, and it just happened to come in. It's like, hey, that's a nice coincidence. Now, as for me... I first encountered the shadow through old-time radio tapes my mom had bought my dad for Christmas when I was around five or so. And like your dad, my dad had grown up listening to the shadow and the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet, and this set had all three of those. So I really got a kick out of listening to them, and so I've always had a fondness for all the characters. Of course, the Lone Ranger, I watched the TV show. Right. And then later, I mean, I met the Green Hornet on the Batman TV show, mm -hmm. although I didn't see his own show for years and years and years till after that. But uh, the Shadow was always more, I didn't have any comics at the time. He was more, he just existed within the radio. And I think the first time I ever saw an image of the Shadow was in that uh, Jeff Rovin's Encyclopedia of the Superheroes book. There's an old a shadow cover so i had no idea what he looked like that he had the the hat and the nose the big nose and the scarf and all that stuff see i mean with me i grew up with my dad saying you know only the shadow knows and i mean doing it and i mean you know and daddy i know several times he would take a red bandana and hold it over 
you know, just playing around. So he must have had some of the magazines, too. Or, you know, something. Yeah. And I mean, he, comic books. Yeah, so. and I mean, so he knew it. And I mean, I grew up with that. And my dad had a nose kind of like portrayed. I mean, let's be honest. My dad had a, a schnoz on him, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, it's, it's true. And I mean, Daddy always liked, you know, the shadow. That was his favorite, so. Yeah. Yeah, my dad really liked the shadow, but I think his favorite was always the Lone Ranger. So, well, but you got to think, you know, my dad was born in '31, so he was more that was more his time. Your my dad's a little bit older than your dad. Yeah, that's true. The 1990s film that we're going to talk about actually kicked around for several years following the success of Batman, and you know, obviously, people were thought, "Hey, this is kind of like Batman because there's obviously a lot of similarities." Uh, and it was actually released between the second and third films of that franchise, so in between Returns and Forever. Okay, we're going to take a break, quick break. When we get back, we will discuss The Shadow, the film starring Alec Baldwin. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new. Hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts. Available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, we're back. As promised, we're going to jump right into discussion of the Shadow film. The Shadow was released July 1st, 1994, directed by Russell Mulcahy, written by David Kep. I think that's how you pronounce that. Uh, it starred Alec Baldwin as Lamont Cranston, a.k.a. The Shadow, John Lone as Shiwan Khan, Penelope Ann Miller as Margot Lane, Peter Boyle as Moe Shrevnitz, Ian McKellen as Dr. Reinhardt Lane, Tim Curry as Farley Claymore, Jonathan Winters as Wainwright Cranston, Lamont's uncle, although in other places I saw that his name was listed as Wainwright Barth. But either way, he was... His uncle. His yeah. uncle, yeah. Sab, Sab Shimano was Dr. Tam. Andrew Gregory was Burbank. Brady Sir... I can't pronounce this... Suratani was Tolku, and James Hong was Lee Ping because you can't make a movie. This is going to sound bad, but it's just it's just a fact. You can't make a movie with Asian characters in it without James Hong. I think it's a it's a law, mm. and he shows up everywhere. And he's you know even take your kids to see a Kung Fu Panda movie. He's the his his dad, the Goose, right? Eh, James yeah, Hong, true. right? He was on Big Bang Theory, you know. When that guy dies, I'm, I mean, we're, Hollywood's going to shut down because that man has been in everything. Yeah, true, true, true. <laughs> and, and he's awesome. He was uh, he was uh, Tia Carrere's dad in Wayne's World. Yeah, in yeah. Wayne's World Two or whatever it was. Yeah, he's been in, he's been in every. He was in, of course, he was the main bad guy in Big Trouble in Little China. So you know, he's in everything. Sometime in the 1930s in Tibet, amongst the opium fields, we meet Yinko an opium warlord who demonstrates no mercy for his enemies, even at the cost of his most trusted allies. He also demonstrates a reluctance to clip his fingernails. Yinko is awakened from his bed full of concubines by visions of a holy man known as the Toku and is seized by his followers. 
The men take Yinko to a temple hidden from sight by Toku's powers to cloud men's minds. Toku knows Yinko is really the American called Lamont Cranston and that he struggles with an inner darkness that often consumes him. Toku offers to teach him how to master his inner shadow and use it to combat the evils that Cranston knows from experience. After a protracted fight with a living CGI flying dagger known as Pruba, or I never came up. Proba. Proba, yeah. yeah. Cranston agrees. A text crawl informs us how Tolku taught Cranston the art of clouding men's minds, hiding everything but his shadow from his enemies. He returned to New York and set his campaign against crime in motion. Seven years later, on the Brooklyn Bridge, the shadow saves Professor Roy Tam from a stereotypical mafia-related death, complete with cement overshoes. The shadow recruits Tam into his army of agents, who all owe the crime fighter their lives. Thank you. These fellows are probably busy. You can just drop me off anywhere along. You're Dr. Roy Tam, a professor in the science department at NYU. Yes. I've saved your life, Roy Tam. It now belongs to me. It does? You'll become one of my agents, like dozens of others all over the world. Could I uh, ask my wife about this? No! Mr. Shrevnitz here will instruct you in the way in which I will contact you should I require your help. When you hear one of my agents say, the sun is shining, you will respond, but the ice is slippery. This will identify you to each other. Do you understand? The sun is shining. But the ice is slippery. Uh, tell me one thing. How did you know what was happening to me? How did you know who I am? <laughs> the shadow knows. <laughs> These agents include Mo Shrevnitz, cab driver, who serves as the Shadow and Cranston's chauffeur. Tam is given a special ring signifying his allegiance to the Shadow and a secret greeting to identify himself to his fellow agents. Bewildered, he is dropped off at home while Mo drives Lamont to a dinner date with his uncle, Police Commissioner Wainwright Cranston. Wainwright reads his nephew the riot act for being constantly late and irresponsible, but Lamont is more interested in the woman who just walked in. Wainwright spills the beans on Margot Lane, daughter of scientist Reinhardt Lane, who is working on top-secret projects for the government. Uncle Wainwright warns Lamont that she's strange and claims to hear voices. That doesn't deter Lamont, who strikes up a conversation with her while some very... Anachronistic. ...background music that sounds like Kenny G plays behind their flirty discussion. Lamont isn't above using his shadow powers to read Margot's mind to make some headway. He is shocked to find she can also read his mind, having mental capabilities of her own. Despite his attraction to her, Lamont feels he shouldn't see her again due to the danger of her learning too much about him. Later that night, Lamont is awakened from his sleep when the flames from his fireplace burst forth with a face that laughs maniacally at him. He knows someone is coming. At the same time, employees of the Natural History Museum, including Willie from ALF, receive a strange unordered shipment the metal tomb of Genghis Khan. The tomb opens abruptly, and from inside steps a man clad in feudal attire. He declares he is Shiwan Khan, last descendant of Genghis himself. 
He takes control of the mind of the lone security guard who witnessed his arrival and orders him to shoot himself. At the Federal Building, behind doors with Army guards, we meet Margot's father, brilliant but absent-minded and colorblind, Professor Reinhardt Lane, and his instantly unlikable, toad-like assistant, Farley Claymore. Despite Claymore's constant badgering, Reinhardt is against military applications for his energy research and only let the Army foot the bill at Claymore's insistence. Claymore notes that he has his beryllium sphere completed and is doing underwater tests at this point. Remember that. It'll be important later. As he leaves, Claymore bumps into Margot and in no way tries to conceal that he is mentally undressing her the whole time. She, in turn, doesn't conceal that she can't stand him. Oh, Margot! What a beautiful dress! And such a clever neckline. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Claymore, I'd like to see my father. Oh, so, when are you going to come down and see my beryllium sphere? I'm not interested in your spheres, Mr. Claymore. Margot confides in her father about her apparent psychic connection with Lamont, but the rattled genius is barely keeping up with the conversation. The long evening ends with Shiwan Khan ordering his cabbie to kill himself rather than record his comings and goings. The next day, one of the Shadows agents sends word of the museum incident through a series of pneumatic tubes that run throughout the city. The message is received by an unnamed man in a central hub who pushes a button that activates the glowing ring of the Shadow agents. Mo picks up Lamont and takes him to the Shadow Sanctum, hidden behind a moving false wall in a secluded alleyway. There, Lamont is informed of the murder by early two-way television. He soon notices he is not alone, and meets Shiwan Khan, who considers himself a great admirer of the man he knows as Yinko. Lamont feigns ignorance briefly, but Khan has the power to invade minds as well. Over Brandy, the two discuss Khan's desire to finish what his ancestors started, and conquer the entire world. So, uh, what brings you to the Big Apple? My destiny. Genghis Khan conquered half the world in his lifetime. I intend to finish the job. And, uh, how do you plan to do that? If I told you, it wouldn't be a surprise. I traveled to this country in Genghis Khan's holy crib to absorb his power. In three days, the entire world would hear my roar and willingly fall subject to the lost empire of Shan King. That is a lovely tie, by the way. May I ask where you acquire it? Brooks Brothers. Is that Midtown? 45th and Madison. You are a barbarian. Thank you. We both are. I know that inside you beats a heart of darkness. You dip into it every time you put on that hat and cloak. Join me. You are Yinko, the Butcher of Lhasa. You, and only you, deserve to be by my side. Together, we'll pit armies against one another like a chess game. We'll collect our due of pain. We'll wash our hands in blood. Your mouth still waters have real power. I am offering you a chance to take it back. Be my partner, Jinko. That's not my name anymore. But it is, nevertheless, still who you are, isn't it? 
For the Burpen. We will meet again soon. Khan tries to convince Yinko to join him, but Lamont ain't having the bromance. Khan leaves behind an ancient coin for his brandy and disappears. While Khan organizes a Mongol army, Lamont visits Professor Roy Tam, who analyzes Khan's coin. Tam determines it is made of the mythical metal known as bronzium, which was once said to be the very stuff the universe was forged from. Lamont asks if it could be used to make a weapon, which leads into some exposition that points right to an implosive device, namely Reinhardt's energy work and Farley's beryllium sphere, and talk of an atomic bomb. Khan does some magic mumbo-jumbo with a Tibetan tapestry and learns of Reinhardt Lane. He calls out to him and speaks through a novelty billboard of a man smoking llama cigarettes. Reinhardt is now in Khan's thrall. Back at the dinner club again, Wainwright and Lamont replay the conversation from before, but Margot interrupts, concerned about her father's strange behavior, refusing to take her calls. Learning of Reinhardt's implosive research, Lamont attempts to take off, but Margot follows him. She blurts out the name Yinko, even though she doesn't know why. Lamont attempts to use his powers to cloud her mind, but it just doesn't work. Lamont! Wait a second, Lamont. I wanted to ask you about my father. I have to go. Yinko! Who's Yinko? You will forget about me. Why would I do that? You will give me no further thought. Are you drunk? Look, Mr. Cranston, I don't know what kind of woman you're used to dealing with, but I certainly don't appreciate being... Hey! The Federal Building. You got it, Bush. Moe drives him to the Federal Building as he physically transforms into the Shadow. When the Shadow arrives, he soon find, finds Khan's Mongol warriors are already after Reinhardt and his bomb. They take off with him while the crime fighter is shot and injured. Khan commands Reinhardt to lure Margot into a trap. He then uses his powers to turn her into a mindless assassin, sending her after Lamont, who is dressing his wounds from earlier. She succeeds in only shooting his reflection, and Lamont is able to snap her out of her mind-controlled stupor. She awakens knowing she was sent to kill the Shadow, and therefore knows Lamont's secret. He orders her to be gone when he returns and heads to the Sanctum. Realizing he is being followed by one of Khan's men, Lamont turns the tables and follows him to a Chinese restaurant, where he finds Khan eating like a barbarian in a tailored suit and familiar tie. The two talk shop again, but it ends when Khan pulls out the Proba dagger, which he took from Tolku after he murdered him. By the way, you sent Margot Lane to kill me. Kill you? <laughs> if I wanted you there, Yinko, I wouldn't have your liver on the pole by now. I sent a girl to be killed. Tell me, how did you kill her? She's alive. And she's a danger to you. She now knows exactly who you are. How long will you let her live? How long before your pure instincts take over? I'm on to your plan, Khan. You still don't have the beryllium sphere, and without it, you can't complete the bomb. Besides, you know I'm gonna stop you. You American are so arrogant. You think your meaningless, decadent country is the new cradle of civilization. But let me tell you hey, something. That's the U.S. of A you're talking about, pal. I am talking about ruling the world. I'd like to give you a name. 
Leonard Levinsky. Brilliant psychiatrist. You'll you talk here. You are boring me! Oh, that knife. The confrontation turns violent and the two fire pistols at one another, which literally hit each other in midair and stop. Khan jumps into an ornate Mongol-themed sidecar, which is kind of funny, toy by Kenner, while Lamont follows Khan in Moe's cab, also made by Kenner. He loses him at an intersection with an empty lot. Lamont returns home to find Margot still there. A romantic moment is stopped short by a reluctant Lamont, but he allows her to stay in a guest room. In his dreams, he imagines coming into Margot's room and pulling the skin of his face to reveal Khan underneath. Subtle. The next morning, Margot insists on accompanying Lamont, reading his every thought as they banter back and forth. Well, I've got to run. I've got a... Uh... Taxi waiting downstairs. Excuse me? Oh, I just sense that's what you were going to say. It is, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> hey, this is getting easier the more I'm around you. You're like reading a book. Well, thank you very much, Lamont, but I won't be needing that taxi. Well, yes, you do. I have a very oh, important... Oh, great. I'll come with you. Uh, no, last night we agreed... Uh, no, I were... didn't agree to anything. Do you mind if I just get one tiny little sentence out here? Thank you very much. Last night we both agreed that you were going to leave this morning. No, you agreed I was going to leave. I agreed to no such thing. We need each other. No, we don't. We have a connection. No, we don't. Then how do you explain that I can read your thoughts? My thoughts are hard to miss. Why is that? Psychically, I'm very well endowed. I'll bet you are. Okay, so you don't need me, but I need you, Lamont, to help me find my father. And I am coming with you. Okay. Khan takes Reinhardt to the top of the Empire State Building to observe the destruction range of his bomb blast. A sailor makes fun of Khan's native attire, so he orders him to leap to his death. Talking with Margot, Lamont learns of Claymore's beryllium sphere. As he goes off to check that out, he asks Margot to look into that empty lot where he lost Khan the night before. In Claymore's water testing lab, the invisible shadow grills the twitchy man. Claymore fills the room with water and pulls a gun, admitting he's aiding Khan of his own free will. He manages to see enough of the shadow to wound him and locks him inside with the rising water. Shadow is able to send a psychic message to Margot, who barely arrives in time to free him from a watery doom. Back at Lamont's home, Margot sees to him as he suffers feverish dreams. She looks into his eyes and sees his bloody past as Yinko. You were dreaming. You saw. Meanwhile, Khan has his assembled bomb and demands millions in ransom to not detonate it. Margot fills Lamont in on what she learned about the lot. The Monolith Hotel was built on that lot, but never opened. Six years ago, it was bought by a mysterious Far Eastern buyer and then demolished. Turns out it wasn't demolished, 
and when they visit the lot again, Lamont can see the enormous building which Khan had secluded with his powers. Khan has Reinhardt set the bomb's timer for two hours. The Shadow sends messages to his agents, including Moe and Margot, who are ordered to go to the entrance of the empty lot and await entry when the building appears. The Shadow then storms the hotel. Khan sends Claymore after him with a Tommy gun. After several rounds are fired, the Shadow orders Claymore's weak mind toward an imaginary exit, and the foaming mouth Toadie leaps to his death. The Shadow confronts Khan in his throne room, complete with rolling floor. Khan sends the Proba dagger after Shadow once more, his injuries cause him to lose his concentration, and his face turns back into Lamont Cranston. So Alec Baldwin doesn't have to wear a prosthetic nose and contacts for the big finale. Lamont is able to finally gain control of Proba and sends it flying into Khan's stomach. The injury causes Khan's powers to slip, and the monolith becomes visible, allowing Margot and Moe inside and freeing Reinhardt's mind. Because Russell Mulcahy directed Highlander, a lot of windows explode. Lamont follows Khan into the laundry room while Margot and her father attempt to disarm the bomb. He instead speeds up the timer and stops it with only two minutes left. Of course he does. It then slips away across Khan's moving dance floor and rolls Raiders style through the hotel. It finally stops suspended over an elevator shaft. With only seconds to spare, Reinhardt plans to clip the green wire but instead clips the red, much to Margot's horror. Thankfully, his color blindness is to blame and he picked the right wire anyway, disarming the bomb. For some reason, the hotel has a hall of mirrors, and Lamont follows Khan there. Lamont uses his psychic powers to cause all the mirrors to explode, bombarding Khan with shards of glass. He levitates one particularly knife-like piece and sends it flying right into Khan's skull. A surprisingly still-alive Khan awakens in a rubber room strapped into a straitjacket. He orders his doctor to release him, only to find part of his frontal lobe has been removed, along with his powers. As the doctor signs out, we see his shadow agent ring glow. Margot and Lamont finally get to share a kiss, and in a very Batman 89-like moment, we leave the world of the shadow behind. I'll see you later. Hey, how will you know where I am? I'll know. Yeah, this movie is highly influenced uh, by the Batman films, particularly the first one from 1989. I don't even think the filmmakers tried to hide it. They were, it's just kind of like, hey, if you like Batman, you're going to like this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. and you know, Universal's probably like, we need a Batman-like movie. It's like, well, we got this shadow thing, you know, we're, let's do it. You know. It's vintage Batman. Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah, and the Batman movie, you know, had that, of course, the shadow, for the most part, I mean, there have been things that have updated him into modern times, but most stuff... Always puts him back in the, the 30s through the 50s. The 30s through the 50s, yeah. And of course, Batman 89, they had that, Gotham City had that, you know, weird, you know, it was part the 40s and it was part modern. And and so you had a lot of, you had a lot of the same kind of costumes and the same kind of architecture. I mean, Gotham City was more extreme. It was like, you know, if the bad parts of New York had taken over. And, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So, I mean, there was a lot, a lot that looked a lot like Gotham City. 
and uh, you know, and perhaps even a little bit of the animated series where it was very retro looking. Right. May have influenced it at this point because that animated series has been going on for two years. Now, as far as I know, and I am by no means a shadow expert, and if we get anything wrong in this episode, please feel free to write in, you know, and, you know, drop us a comment on the Fire and Water site or email us. Uh, but I think all the Yinko business is crafted for this movie. The Shadow, who we mentioned earlier was really Kent Allard in the Pulps, supposedly learned his skills from a yogi in India, not Tibet. He did learn to alter his... Hope, hey, boo-boo. Hey, not a yogi, but a yogi, you know what I mean? Hey! <laughs> I don't think the Shadow's going to like this yogi. I'm I couldn't sorry. help it, I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't stop myself. I hear that and I automatically think of the bear with the hat. Yeah. So... <laughs> I can use my powers to cloud men's minds and still picking it tight baskets. <laughs> I don't think Ranger Smith would like you clouding his mind, Yogi. <laughs> Coming soon, the Yogi Bear Podcast. <laughs> uh, uh, and I learned how to do Yogi Bear from my dad, too. So, happy Father's Day. Um, anyway. But it did, you know, I did some research on this, and a lot of this comes from Jeff Rovin's previously mentioned Encyclopedia of Superheroes, which I, that is like my oldest comic reference book. And I think I got that from, a, I think my mom got it for me from a, like a Walden Books. Remember Walden Books in the mall? Oh, yeah. And like in 1985. Thing. Hey. Yeah. So there you go. But anyway. I've repaired it several times. I know. It's dog ears. It's all hell. But, um, he apparently he did learn to alter his facial structure. So a lot of times they don't pick that up in the comics. They'll show Lamont Cranston with the kind of a big nose looking like the shadow. Mm -hmm. But here we see, you know, obviously Alec Baldwin's, you know, handsome Alec Baldwin. And when he's in his shadow garb, he's got like the big nose and his, his eyes go from blue to black. They're like really dark. And, right. And he gets all craggy looking. Yeah. He's got, yeah, he gets craggy looking in the face. So that's not that part's not made up for the movie. Apparently, that is a previously existing thing. But the whole thing about him being Yinko is is new. And and me personally, I enjoy this movie, but it's a little hard to swallow Alec Baldwin as a long haired, nasty fingernailed opium lord with silky pajamas. I just I don't know. It just looked kind of well. I have this is the one problem I have with this film is the timeline because. And this is jumping ahead a little bit, but when his uncle is talking to him in the nightclub, he's like, you know, after the war, you disappeared for seven years. Well, apparently he was supposed to have trained for seven years before he came back. He still has to have time to become Yinko. Well, I thought he so, meant, I thought, know, I, I kind of assumed he had served in World War One, and then disappeared in the Orient after the war. And then he was over there and became like a, a opium warlord and then... And then this, you know, he disappeared for seven years and then came back. Mm. That's kind of what I kind of got. I don't know. It's kind of dicey to me. Mm. Eh. Could be. Because was he, you know, while he was doing Yinko, hey, uncle, I'm doing this. And then suddenly no contact for seven years. Well, maybe kind of, I, you know, I kind of have a little heart. I mean, I understand the whole, the whole and, dark, you know, dark side of, of the character and everything. Okay. You know, he's he's pulling from that. He's using it. Okay, that I can kind of understand that to a point. But also had a little. Uh, I, I mean, I know that you know not all every country you know moved forward with technology and everything, obviously. But 
it, it the Yinko stuff, especially when they showed a flashback later, it almost looked like it took place in like feudal China, like back in like the you know Middle Ages or something. You know, it didn't look like it happened like in the 1920s or 30s. Well, that part I can set to the side because there are parts of China that are still like that now. Okay. I mean that. It, I mean there are traveling, you know. There are traveling tribes of Mongols that still travel. And I mean, so that's not too far off the beaten path, okay. even for now. Okay, but it just, I guess, because, you know, when I see that in a movie, I'm thinking, and in fact, for, I had to stop and remember that Yinko wasn't, that there wasn't like a previous incarnation of him and he was reincarnated as Lamont Cranston and basically Yinko from his past took him over, you know? I thought, but it's, that's not the case. Right. But, before we watched the movie again, I had told myself that's what the what was going on, and it, it wasn't. But I just I think, you know, you know Alec Baldwin's like you know your classically heroic looking guy, mm-hmm. and you know especially when he's younger he's a little bit. I mean not that he's not a bad looking guy now, but he was thinner then. He's a little bit heftier now, you know. But he, I, I can kind of see this kind of in a way, at least at the time proves. Tim Burton's theory that you need a guy with a little bit of crazy in him to pull that type of character off. Like, if they'd got somebody that had that kind of edge, I think you would have bought the Yinko part more. Like, you bought Michael Keaton was just slightly unhinged. Mm-hmm. He made sense as Bruce Wayne and Batman. Especially when you go that dark with him and, the, you know, you got the long hair and he's all, you know, he's got right. the fingernails. It just, it looked like Alan, Alec Baldwin up for an SNL skit. To me, more than anything, Uh. you know. But, I don't know. The flying dagger effects are pretty well done, actually. But there's a lot to swallow off the bat in this movie. I mean, just within the first six minutes, you get the hero's a drug lord in a Tibet that seems to have been plucked from the 1500s, like I said. He is abducted by an all-powerful holy man who looks like a kid, but sounds like a man. But they do match up the the lips and the the voice very well, yeah. And then there is an anthropomorphic dagger that can fly and bite people. Like I said, that's that's like the first six or seven minutes of the movie. Right. That's right. a lot to, you know, people were probably like, I mean, I remember kind of being, we saw this in the theater, I remember being going, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that they got the look and stuff down, right? And I'm like, okay, I know it's going to, you know, I know it's going to look good here in a minute, but this is just, I wasn't expecting this. Since David Kep has gone on to write the first Spider-Man film, I have to wonder if he wasn't familiar with Doctor Strange because elements of his shadow origin are very similar to that of Stephen the Strange. Mysticism. Yeah, and you know, the ancient, well, Tolku is the ancient one and mm-hmm. you have this American that's, you know, he's he's given up and, you know, and he's given in to, you know, of course in Doctor Strange he was an arrogant uh, surgeon, surgeon that, you know, ends up having an accident that wrecks his nerves and he can't use his hands, but, but you still got this down-your-luck American and it's lost his way, and he finds this, you know, it, 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 there's similarities, you know, and especially with the trailer for uh, the movie out of Doctor Strange, it made it even seem, you know, a little a little more obvious. And David Kep actually came up in the film and water that we um, did, that, that, that Ryan and I did with Rob about Raiders of the Lost Ark, because he wrote... Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and he's also apparently writing the new movie, which some people, you know, including Rob, are like, oh, you know, that's, he wrote that one. <laughs> but the dude's, 
the dude's very prolific. I mean, I'll give him that. And he's written some some really good movies, and he's written some, you know, some, I don't know. Like I said, they got the look of the shadow down pat, although when Duke's men first see him, I don't want to know if you notice this, on the bridge, he doesn't seem to be wearing his cape, and then suddenly he starts walking toward him, and he does. Mm. Do you notice that? He's like got the overcoat with the, the holsters strapped around his chest, like the double gun holsters, right. but he doesn't have his cape on, but then the shot changes, and he's walking toward him with his cape. Hmm. So maybe he clouded his, their minds. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you can, any little thing like that, oh, cloud, cloud his mind. Cloud yeah. Mind, you know. Yeah. Uh, like we said, I pre the flowing cape and all black attire with the slouch hat and a red scarf, that, pretty sure that originated with the pulps because, you know, that's where the visual would come in. Um, the way that they recruit Tam to show how the Shadows organization works is, is a nice touch. The scene where the Shadow blasts Tam's cement overshoes with this blazing forty five that's straight out of every shadow comic book you've ever looked at. Mm-hmm. I mean it's really it's a really cool image. Uh maybe it's because we're watching it on high def TV and on a DVD, although I don't, we don't have a Blu-ray. I don't even know if it's that on Blu-ray, but I thought the prosthetic nose and other makeup of the shadow doesn't hold up as well as I remember it did in the theater. I don't remember having a problem with it in the movie itself, other than there's like two times where you see him with the fake nose and no scarf. Mm. He's in the the rearview mirror as as Peter Boyle's looking at it. Right. And then later when he's fighting Shiwan Khan at the end and the knife and he, he says, you're starting to lose your concentration. He, he changes from the shadow's Partial, yeah. face back into Cranston. And uh, that's the only two times in the theater I remember going, oh, the nose looks fake. But... It kind of jumped out at me when I was watching it. Hmm. I don't know. But I just kind of wonder if they shouldn't have left Alec Baldwin's face alone and just used the scarf, you know, and not, not went with the nose. I mean, because there's been a few, like the Howard Chaykin didn't draw, draw him with the, like, giant schnozola, but... I don't know. I don't know. That's Daddy always talked about him having a snot. Well, I know. So. No, he does. But I'm just saying, I, you know, I, I don't know. I just Nowadays, they could just... You know, use Do CGI, CGI yeah, and, but yeah, know. yeah, but it's a minor quibble. He still looks cool. It's just the close-ups that 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 kind of jumped out at me. It, you know, it's it's kind of a shame Jonathan Winters isn't given much to do here. You know, he's kind of funny, but you know, he's well. You know what I said while we were watching? <laughs> I couldn't help it. I every time I see, I mean, and I know Jonathan Winters is a very prolific actor. I know he's been in a lot of things. But whenever I see him, I think about him being Mork and Mindy's baby. Mirth. I can't help it. Every <laughs> time. That's what that's what I remember him as. Daddy! <laughs> I remember him as that and being on Scooby-Doo. Because he was on one of those Scooby-Doo, oh, yeah, yeah. Scooby-Doo movies. <laughs> but I mean, that's... What that's I, just a product of when we grew up. You yeah. know, I mean, it, that was what was on, on TV. So, I think with him... They were just trying to follow the Batman formula of taking established character actors and putting them in supporting roles to flesh the film out. Yeah, you, know, you got yeah. Pat Hingle, you got Billy D. Williams. Just another draw, just another draw. You know. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, they're in this, you know. Now I do got to say I really like Penelope. I and love her in this. Yeah. And I mean, we were talking about that. You know, what are the films we know her from? And I mean, the the gun in Betty Lou's handbag. I mean, you know, which is another film of that same time. And you mentioned several films. I yeah, mean, yeah. I just like her because she is one of these 
she is pretty yeah. without being gorgeous. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, she's also, she's, okay, this is the way it is. And, you know, you either like me or you don't. Right. I mean, she seems like she's having a ball while she's making yes. this. She looks great. I mean, she looks probably better in this than she did in anything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's like, wow. I mean, I've, I mean, I'm not saying I didn't ever find her like she's not attra- unattractive, but in this movie, she's like, damn, you know. I mean, so, <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, you know, and at no point does the shadow actually rescue her. Nope. Throughout this movie, she saves him from mm-hmm. the uh, Claymore's water trap, and and then she helps defuse the bomb and save the day. But he never, like, actually rescues her. No, and I mean, he tries to, you know, like, read her mind. And she's like, no, whatever, yeah. Heather. Yeah, and he's like, you're going to forget me. And all this is like, well, why would I do that? Yeah, <laughs> you like, know, it's just like. And I love it in that scene. What if you notice they start playing the shadow music when he's doing that? It's like, you'll forget you ever met me. You'll go away. And he's she's like, well, why would I do that? And you can hear the music going, <laughs> it kind of dies out and it's just like not working. He's like, oh crap, I can't do this. You know, it doesn't work on her. Although she won cons able to put the mental whammy on her. So that's, you know, but. But you have, here's the thing though. And this is me being a romantic. Everybody has that one person that they have a connection with. In mm-hmm. this case, it's her and Lamont. So, right. you know, it's not going to work on her because they're too connected. Right. Somebody else that's also psychically endowed right. <laughs> can do that. Yeah, that's an awesome. There are some great lines in this movie, and they have some great chemistry. Yes. They they really do. I mean, that... I mean, that's the that's for me. That's the shame of of this not doing what they wanted it to is that we didn't get any more back and forth between them two. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I I enjoyed that actually better than a lot of the other aspects of the mm-hmm. movie. But yeah, she she was actually really great, and I liked John Lone as Shiwan Khan because they could have went two ways with this. They could have made him a total joke or a typically boring world conqueror type, but. He finds that nice balance of he's a threat, but he's also, you enjoy it when he's on the screen. And him and Baldwin have a good back and forth, he too. He walks that really fine line of being a scene chewer. Yeah. Without quite doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, well, I he's think, right there on the edge. I think the character allows him to be pretty broad, mm-hmm. but he doesn't take it beyond what he should. Mm-hmm. And the next movie we're we're going to talk about, the lead villain totally chews every square inch of the scenery in that film. Uh-huh. And he has no business doing it because he's not an extravagant character type like this guy is. Uh, but I, I really, I really liked, I liked him. And I liked, there was some really good banter back and forth between him and, and Alec Baldwin. And, mm-hmm. and, and Alec Baldwin, I mean, we, we kind of, you know... I, I said that about him in the Yinko stuff, but other than that, I really liked him in this film. Yes, and he yes. carried it well. I mean, you know, I didn't have any, I didn't, I didn't doubt him for a minute. And I like the fact that you know, there's that little interchange. You know, he brought a little of his Alec Baldwinness to the role, and it's like, hey, you're talking about the U.S. of A. there, buddy. You know, things yeah. like that. Just, just you know, I I kind of like that. I mean, he seemed like he was having a good time too. Mm-hmm. Everybody seemed like they were engaged, which. In this movie, which you know, sometimes you get big budget movies and they're not, and then that you can tell it. So now, Khan claims that 
he came to America in his ancestor's tomb to absorb his energy. Now, that kind of sounds nuts, but given all the other stuff going around in this movie, you know, why not? So that, that so what happened to Genghis Khan's body? That's what I was wondering. You know? <laughs> As there, well, there might not be a whole lot left, you know? But still, ew. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe you know, I don't know, he'd keep his ashes in a, what was left of him in a, like, little thing down in the corner. Maybe there's a baggie that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and just... <laughs> Smoke him if you got him. He's, he's roll a big fatty for Genghis Khan. You know, I don't know. Oh my! We're getting punchy. It's late it's at night. Light. Yeah. Now, speaking of people that are you know kind of underutilized in this movie, knowing what we know of Sir Ian McKellen, mm-hmm. I, I kind of think he's a little wasted here. I mean. He's he's really good in the role. You totally buy. He's an oh, absent-minded yeah. professor, but of course you do because he's Ian McKellen. He's a fantastic actor. Well, heck yeah. But you know, it's just knowing what we know of him now from obviously all of his movies, but particularly us geeks know him from the X Men movies and the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbit movies. That you know, it's like you know, it's just it just seems weird that he doesn't. I mean, he's you basically get one scene at the beginning of the movie before he's brainwashed. And then the scenes at the end when he's no longer brainwashed, and through the rest of it, he's just, yes, my con, you know. Yeah. I mean, he plays the befuddled, I'm under mind control very well, but it just it just seems odd and a kind of a waste. Now, one character I can't quite figure out is Farley Claymore. I liked Tim Curry, but I'm not quite sure where they were going with that character. It makes you think that there was supposed to be something else following because they had him in there so much and then they just killed him off quickly well and it's 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 weird because i really love that first scene with him and margo where, where he's like don't you want to come see my beryllium sphere and she's like i don't want anything to do with your spheres and you're just like yes <laughs> there's lots of double like, entendres and... i don't like you <laughs> yes yeah, like you don't recur, return my calls anymore. Well, actually, I never returned your calls. Yeah, things like that. I mean, but he seems, you know, to just be, you know, a self-serving weasel mm-hmm. at, in some scenes. And then in others, he's like, he's totally insane. Yeah. And it's like, they can't decide what they want him to be. Now, there's that, you know, when he when he's like, goes crazy with the, with the uh, Tommy gun, he's like, you know, there's, I mean, there's this extreme, like, overhead camera shot, and you get this, like, close, as it's, like, staring down at him, and he's, he's, he's all sweaty, and his eyes are all bugged out, because his eyes are always kind of bugged out well, anyway. Yeah, I was say. And he's like, come out like a man, you know, and all this stuff, and he's, like, really just, like, totally over the top, and then when a shadow gets a hold of him, he's literally foaming at the mouth. I know. I mean, he's like, <laughs> all over the place, and the shadow, like, sends him out of the room, he's like, get out of my sight. And you're like, oh, is he really going to let him go? Well, no, of course he's going to like make him think that he sees an exit and run toward it. And but for that split second when he gets out of there, it's like he straightens himself up. Like it's almost like he was acting like he was nuts. Yeah. But then he goes and runs out the window. It's like they really didn't know what they were doing. And in the the I would have liked to have seen at least seen Shiwan Khan approach him. Yeah. And you didn't know is he going to is he under mind control? Is he not? And then later he says, "Nobody controls my mind. I'm, you know, I'm doing it of my own free see, will." It's I'd, like there's I'd some like cut see, scenes. Exactly. That's what I was going to yeah. say. I'd like to see what was cut from this movie. Yeah, poor Tim Curry. He's always getting cut. He he was the original Joker on Batman the Animated Series, and they decided to change it. And, Thank goodness. Well, I know, and I, but I, I feel. I mean, obviously, 
we wanted Mark Hamill to be the well, Joker yeah. on Sight Shows. That was the awesome choice. But at the same time, I feel bad for the guy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, all those residual tech checks from Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, if he's getting any, I'm, let's hope so. But uh, speaking of uh, slightly familiar faces, the museum card that the guard, the, the museum guard that commits suicide thanks to Shiwan Khan is Ethan Phillips, who played Neelix on Star Trek Voyager, everybody's favorite character and everybody's favorite Star Trek. Somebody else that's familiar is one of the army guards. Mm-hmm. He is from ER. He yep. goes on to play ER and Open Range. In Open Range and in Parker Lewis Can't Lose. Yes. I can't think of the actor's name, but he's in everything. He's always mm-hmm. the big guy. And the other guard was is a familiar character actor. I know, actor, but I, I know, think, and I could not place either. Yeah, I couldn't think who he was. You know, as I pointed out, Max Wright, who played Willie on Alf, works at the museum. So right. all sorts of familiar faces in here. I like the whole Sanctum Agent Network scenes. Nowadays, he just give them a cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, he wouldn't have to, it's like, here's my cell phone. Keep it hidden. I'll call you when I need you. Yeah, right, right. No more. But I like the ring. That's you know the ring and the pneumatic tube and you know it all. It calls to all that stuff. Like send in for your shadow decoder ring. You know yeah, back then. Yeah. You know which they did wear the rings and the stories and everything. But you know that the cell phone thing it takes all the romance out of oh, it. Yeah. You know, I, I you know I like that. I like I I, I do kind of wish we'd seen a few more. Um, you know, Mo Tam. We saw Mo. We saw Professor Tam. We saw the cop that sent the initial message. Mm-hmm. And apparently the place, the office where they went and put the message in, that's the actual name of it in the in the pulps, too. Mm. So they brought all that stuff directly from that. And the guy that the people are yelling at me that know the shadow real well, the the, the, the guy that, uh, I think his name is Burbank, that, that uh, that's, I think I listed him here. They don't name him, but I think in the, the name of actors, there's a character... Named Burbank, yeah, Andre, Andre Gregory is Burbank. I believe Burbank is the character in the hub where oh, all the okay. tubes come in that talks to the shadow across the TV. And he's got like you know one or two lines, but I wish they'd named him in the movie, but they don't. But I, I'd like to have seen a few more agents, but they were probably holding that back for the next they, yeah. the next movie that they didn't ever do. I'm not really sure how the bronzium works into the bomb beryllium sphere thing. That whole scene with Tam is kind of quick exposition that movies do to move a plot along and it doesn't really hold up any under any amount of scrutiny it just kind of like it's like here let's move it works well enough when you're watching it the first time and when you're not scrutinizing it for a podcast when you really start (laughs) to think about it it's like wait a minute the i mean i don't know maybe maybe it does work i don't know you know i don't know i don't know who knows but now i did read that various elements from the film uh, story elements including Khan's metal tomb, the smoking billboard, with, with the llamas instead. Of yeah, the camels. Yeah, and a room and a room with mirrors are all pulled from actual shadow pulp novels. So that's cool. Now I have seen. You know, we were talking about the scene with Claymore's water tank thing. I've seen this pointed out. You know, why wasn't water coming out of the hole the shadow breathed through in the tank? There was right. water coming out of all the other holes. And with that much pressure, they'd be coming out of every freaking... Any orifice that it could. Yeah. And, I mean, he wouldn't have been able to breathe because the water would be going out. Right. It wouldn't... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that, there, was some, there was some shaky some shaky physics going on in that scene. <laughs> so, now, is this the first movie mm. where the hero is unmasked through 
a good chunk of it. I mean, I don't, you know, that's a common, you know, oh, gripe because like Tommy McGuire took off his his Spider Man mask and oh, there he is again. And I mean, even some people like you know about Captain America. You know, it's like oh, Chris Evans has got his helmet off, although he wears it quite a bit in Civil War actually. But you know, his identity is not secret. So, but yeah. I mean, you know. But, you know, so you've got, you know, even the climatic battle, we see Alec Baldwin's face. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. he doesn't stay in shadow guys that long. And uh, like I said, that look is similar to the Howard Chaykin mid-80s DC comics where he's got the jacket and the double holsters. He did have the hat, but he didn't have the big nose and the scarf and all that stuff. Um, if the finale seems a bit abrupt, apparently a longer scene was planned where Khan taunts... Lamont Cranston with images of his past, like Yinko and all that stuff. And there was a massive earthquake in California while they were filming in January of 94, and it destroyed the set, and there wasn't time or money to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. But I still wonder, where the crap did this Hall of Mirrors come from? Did is is I mean, that maybe maybe Shiwan Khan is just that vain and installed. Well, though, if you're talking about... You know, you've got this huge, massive hotel. It wouldn't have been unheard of that there would be a room that had mirrors in it, like a big ballroom. Well, I guess so. I it mean, could you have know? Been. Yeah, a little, a little more explanation, exposition. I mean, it's very rushed. I mean, he's he's chasing him through the lawn. They they the the tomb opens up into a laundry chute, uh -huh. and and you know he's chasing him in the laundry room. And then the next thing you know, they're in this hall of mirrors that just seems to come out of nowhere. Right. So, and, I, and I'm assuming it's a real hall of mirrors and not some kind of psychic manipulation thing, or then the whole using it, the dagger, the, right. the glass to cut his head wouldn't have worked, so to go through his skull. But, you know, it's weird. I didn't think about it until watching it this time, but though they, they dance around it, but at no point is the famous line... Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. It's never heard in its entirety mm -hmm. throughout the whole movie. They say the weed of crime bit bears bitter fruit, which is also another line from the radio. But that's when he rescues Tam. But that's, you never hear the most famous line, which is, I mean, he's several times he's like, I'll know. And, you know, yeah. but he never, and, 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 and even, and, uh, um, I think Tolku says, you know, you know what evil lurks in the hearts of men, but the shadow never says it. So, um, I thought the score by Jerry Goldsmith was was pretty nice. It's nothing overly memorable, but it works well. I mean, you're not like humming it when you're done, but it works yeah. for the movie. But as we pointed out in the synopsis, that that music when he first starts talking to Margot is very like 1990s mellow, you know. Soft, soft, soft jazz Kenny G sound and stuff. It's definitely not 40s sounding no, uh -uh. music or late 30s. So, speaking of songs, I was sitting there, the you know, watching the end credits and the, the, the pop song that comes on is called Original Sin. And I was thinking, it sounds like a female meatloaf. Uh -huh. And then I said, it kind of sounds like Taylor Dane. And then I saw it was by Taylor Dane. So I was right about that, and it was written by Jim Steinman, who wrote all of Meatloaf's biggest hits. hits. Yeah. So, <laughs> and it was cool to see that Michael Kaluta got a thanks from the production. Now, I don't know exactly what he did. I don't know if he did design work or whatever. And then that Walter Gibson got acknowledged, which, of course, being the creator of The Shadow, he should have. So, Right. Um, 
you know, clearly they wanted this to be a franchise, and it's a shame it didn't happen because with the origin out of the way, we could have gotten more of that Baldwin, Penelope, and Miller banter back and forth, yeah. and I'd like to see what they've done with it. I don't, I mean, I don't know what they would have done with it. Also, did they sign Baldwin and Miller for you know more? I don't know. Like that's with a, options, or you know, I'd that, be curious. Yeah, I would be too. I'm assuming that they do. I think they, that's kind of pretty well standard, you know, that they would, you know. It's I, I I guess it's just you know if the movie makes this much money we'll we'll mm-hmm. we'll do another. I was reading that and I think I read this before like in comic scene comic scene magazine was huge. It should have been called comic screen magazine honestly because it it was more about tracking the development of comic based movies mm-hmm. than actually comic books a lot of times. And it was made by the people that make Starlog and they, so it made sense. Oh, it was yeah. con- it connected to. To uh, movie magazines, so I read, I read on IMDb, and I think I remember reading it there that Sam Raimi, who of course went on to direct Spider-Man movies and directed the Evil Dead movies mm-hmm. and Darkman and all that stuff, he apparently lobbied to direct this film, and I think one reason why he did Darkman was because he didn't get to do this film. Mm-hmm. But I would have liked to have seen him do this movie because Russell Mulcahy is 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 fine. He's not a bad director. I'm not saying that. But I think somebody like Raimi could have been to that, to the shadow, what Tim Burton was for Batman and kind of establishing like a, a certain style and, and make, maybe making some of the more extreme parts of it a little more palatable because you would have been like, Oh, it's Sam Raimi. He does weird stuff, and you would have already been more in tune. Like, okay, Sam Raimi's being weird, and there's a you know he always puts those horror elements, and uh-huh. even the Spider-Man movies, like when Doc Ock's arms go crazy and kill yeah. all the hospital attendants and everything. So, I think you would have bought the Yinko angle a lot better because you would have, it just would have. Of course, I say that, but freaking Russell Mulcahy directed Highlander and you had the Kurgan and you bought all that. Right. But right. I don't, I don't know. I just, I think he would have bought, you know, he would have brought some, a little more of a stylistic touch to it. But, you know, but as it stands, I enjoy the movie. I, I did. I mean, it's not, there's, there's a little something that, especially in the front end of it, that's a little off, I think. But then the, I think Baldwin and Penelope Ann Miller and John Lone are also fully engaged. You just enjoy watching them. Yeah. You know, and I, and I, and I think, you know, even if it wasn't about the shadow and it was just those characters, you know, him like Baldwin was some kind of agent or something trying to stop him, it still would be an enjoyable movie. Right. You know, I just, I think it works. Now, as I, we kind of pointed out, Kenner obviously thought they had another Batman like hit on their hands because they made Batman toys back then. And they developed a toy line that included figures of the Shadow and Shiwan Khan and even Moe's Cab, although it had pop-up weapons and stuff. Uh-huh. The the figures were actually pretty nice at the time, although most weren't movie accurate in any way. But Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and you had, you even did have the motorcycle with the sidecar. Didn't quite look like the movie, but it had the ornate, you know, Chinese, you know, looking side with all the, you know, filigree and dragon, you know, iconography and stuff all over it and... It was kind of neat, you know, but I remember the, the best shadow was like, he had like uh, the light pipe eyes where there's yeah. like dark side from superpowers or the, the, um, the scarecrow from Batman animated. 
where, you know, he, his eyes lit up red, which they never do in the movie, but, you know, it was still cool. And he, like, squeezed his legs. He had, like, the superpower action where his guns would come up. up yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty neat. I still got that figure somewhere, but it was pretty neat. Yeah. So that'll do it for uh, the, uh, the, first, the first round of our blockbusters that weren't. Uh, next time, we're going to take a look at another proto-superhero character, this time from comic strips that influenced a lot of comic book characters. And we're going to slam evil with the Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises Worldwide. And he's a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. The characters and properties mentioned in this show are copyright their respective holders. Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their holders and no infringement is implied. So please don't sue my mommy and daddy. <laughs> Emails can be sent to supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Comments can be left at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or by visiting fireandwaterpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook by searching for Supermates and FW Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter by using the hashtag FWPodcast. Please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. You know, I think they just made up the shadow so people would listen to the radio more. What do you think, Roy?